Romans chapter 2. We change over from chapter 1 where we've spent, uh, it seems like years, but probably just been months. But uh, Romans chapter 2 this morning, and I speak to you on the topic titled, No Excuses and No Exceptions. And really, coming from the scriptures, it's very clear from this chapter. Let me read, if I may, the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, obviously those words we're familiar with, that therefore always sends you looking backward, and that will become obvious as we read through chapter 2. But therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou judgest or condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest dost the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor, immortality, eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil of the Jew first and also to the Gentile or of the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. So read verses 1 through 11 of Romans chapter 2. Probably there's no word that fits this particular chapter better than the word hypocrite. It would probably do you well to write right over the margin of chapter 2, hypocrite. It'll keep you reflecting on what's happening in chapter 2. By the way, the Greek word for hypocrite is the word hypocrites. If you say it real fast, it's hypocrites. But the word hypocrites is the word that means disguised or someone who wears a mask so you can't tell who they really are or someone who acts out a character sketch so that you can't recognize who they are. They're portraying something else. That's the word in the Greek language for the word hypocrite. That fits well, this story. And I might tell you that you know as well as I that the world is quite overloaded with hypocrites. While the world at large and the pagans in general think that most of those hypocrites are churchgoers and professing Christians, I got news for you and for them. That's not true. The fact of the matter is there are hypocrites all over the place. Are there hypocrites in church? Oh, I'm certainly sure there are. But are there hypocrites in all the professions outside this building? Oh, I know there are. I run into them just like you do. The fact of the matter is, some folks think, though, that hypocrites only relate to churches and Christians and people who are religious. That's not the case. And Romans chapter 2 is going to prove it. First off, let me mention this to you. I know you know of Adolf Hitler. Everybody in this room would know of 
Adolf Hitler. But did you know, technically, he was probably as big a hypocrite as has ever walked this earth. You may or may not know that uh, Adolf Hitler had the village where he was born on the Bavarian border. He had that thing totally, absolutely annihilated. I mean, he contacted his commander of his German army and he said to this fellow, you go over there and you absolutely destroy that village. And they said, but sir, you are, you know, you, that's where you were born. That's where your family records are. And he said, precisely, I want you to destroy it. Historians account for the fact that there was not a single sheet of paper that was not burnt or fully and totally destroyed. Well, you say, what's the reason for that? The reason was very simple. Hitler's father was named Alois. He was believed to be an illegitimate son of a Jewish man. And Adolf Hitler made absolutely sure that nobody ever had any findings of his birth records to prove he had any kind of relationship to the Jewish community. Why? Because obviously he'd made it his life's mission to get rid of every Jew that he could. The hypocrisy of that. That's amazing. Hitler was a hypocrite. But you best be careful, as I must, because there's a little bit of hypocrite in all of us as long as we're in this flesh. There's a, there's a certain sense and when we look at others and see in others something that re, repulses us, we have to watch out to make sure that it's not something inside of us that is troubling us. In fact, that's part of what chapter number 2 starts with here. I heard about a man who went to a, a counselor. Uh, I had gotten a call yesterday about doing some counseling for some folks who are not members of our fellowship, and so I was arranging a schedule, and, and I had reminded myself of this, and it reminded me of a guy who was doing some counseling. A person called, a man called, and said, could I come in and see you? And he said, certainly you can. When the man walked in the door, this guy walks in with bacon attached to his two earlobes, big strings of bacon, down right here. He had a fried egg on the top of his head, and he was walking very gingerly to make sure that it didn't fall off. He walked into the counselor's office, and the counselor said, Why are you here, sir? And he said, I'm here to talk about my brother. He has a problem. When I read that, I just absolutely fell out of my seat. Because if you're not careful in counseling, and those of you who don't, not too connected in the counseling, you won't get that too much. But the point is this. You know, when I go to counsel people, that's often the first problem we have to get over. It's not my fault. I mean, it's not my problem. It's this other guy's problem. You know, and I'm here to talk to you about his problem. And, and I say to you that, my friend, that's hypocrisy of the highest order. I would remind you that needs to, and you and I both need to get this down deep as you read through chapter 2 of Romans, that God does not and is not taken in by what other people think of us. God sees and looks upon our hearts. And this morning, if you miss everything else, you do not want to miss that. That God looks upon the heart. You remember when Israel was faced with getting another king and God was going to do the picking and he sent Samuel down to do the picking. Over in 1 Samuel 16 it said, And the Lord said to Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go, and I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. When you skip down to verse 6 of 1 Samuel 16, it says, And it came to pass that when they were come, that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. In verse 7, But the Lord said unto Samuel the prophet, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, 
because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh upon the heart. You need to keep that in mind as you come through chapter number 2 of the book of Romans. God's not looking at somebody's stature. He's not looking at their advantages. He's not looking at what they are from an external religious kind of thing. I mean, the fact that folks come to church on Sunday is a good thing. But that's not going to get you to heaven. And it's a good thing that people come through the waters of baptism. That's a good thing if you know Christ. If you don't, it's just going to get you wet. Nothing more, nothing less. Joining a church is a good thing, and every Christian ought to be a baptized church member. Every Christian ought to be. Ought to connect to a Bible-believing church and get involved and, and stake your claim in ministry and responsibility and begin to serve the Lord out of the context of a local church. And I say to you, that's an important thing, but that won't save you. And what's important for us to know about this is that in all of this activity, sometimes we forget the spiritual. You see, it's easier to be busy than it is to be right. It's easier to be busy. Oh, great, yes. You can just go, go do and do and do and do and do, but not spend any time in prayer, not spend any time in private reading of the Scriptures, not do any private witnessing. You only do it when somebody's watching. You don't do anything that would be, you know, anything that's going to be really spiritual personally. It's just a public thing. And if you're not careful, you watch out. That'll be your spiritual life. It's public life. And let me tell you something. Spiritual life that's just public is not what God's looking for. You've heard me say it a multitude of times. You are what you are when you are alone. Not when you're in a New Life Baptist Church and everybody's watching. I'll guarantee you, every man in this room is going to be the best husband when he gets to the church as he, as he could be. Now, some are sorry even here. And you can only imagine what they'd be at home alone. But, I mean, I'm telling you that they do their best. They put their best foot forward. But the fact of the matter is, it's what they are elsewhere that really counts. What God's going to look for is when nobody else is looking and God's just looking this way, what kind of person are you then? How many folks do you witness to when nobody urges you to do it and nobody's watching and you don't have to write it in a report and pastor's not going to ask you about it? How many times do you read the Word of God? How much time do you spend in prayer when it's not something you have to do in order to accommodate some problem you've got? You see, those are the things that count spiritually. Those are the kinds of things that rate with God. It's when you do it from the heart as unto the Lord, not as before men. Not as men-pleasers. Not as people who you're trying to make yourself look good. You're just being looking good to God, just you and Him. And He knows and He sees and He, he doesn't have to be told. You see, with God, there is no such thing as a hypocrite. He sees the heart. He pays no attention to the outward trappings. I remind you that Romans chapter 1 tells us how God sees and deals with the heathen. When you come to chapter 2, it tells you how God deals and sees the hypocrite. I note something right off the bat, and it caught my eye as I read it. Look at chapter number 1 of Romans, and look at verse 32. Verse number 32 of Romans 1, Who, knowing the judgment of God, that they... And you ought to draw a circle around the word they. They which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do it. And then if you would, look at chapter number 2 and verse 1. Therefore, thou... And you ought to circle the word thou. Reason? It's no longer... They, it's now personal, it's thou. It's almost as if he changes gears and he says, okay, all the things we talked about in chapter 1 about the heathen, 
I want you to take to heart and understand now it's on your shoulders. You've got to deal with it personally. And that's really the reason for the therefore in chapter number 1. Therefore, based on all these things that are true about the heathen, I want you folks here in chapter number 2 that I'm going to address to understand that you are inexcusable just like they are inexcusable. And he gets into a whole regiment of things here. By the way, right alongside of the word hypocrite in chapter or chapter number 2, you could and probably should write the word judgment. Because this is a chapter about judgment. And you ought not skirt away from that. You ought to face that and look at it in its context. First of all, in verse number 1, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art, that judgest. Now this is human judgment, obvious. And judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. But skip to verse 2. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which do such things. Look at verse 3. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and dost the same thing or same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Look at verse 5. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And then skip to verse number 16. In verse 16, Paul writes, In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. There's one thing for sure, there is a judgment. And chapter number 2 says it clearly and says it succinctly and says it abruptly. That if you think you're going to get away with this, you're nuts. Now you have to understand something and you need to understand it right up front theologically. He's writing to people who do not know Christ. He's writing to people who are in the case of chapter 2 when we deal with these people who are Jewish There are people who are going to tell you that they are moral, they keep the law, they do all these wonderful moral things. But he's going to say that doesn't count if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. The emphasis of the music this morning has been on Christ I stand. Christ being the centrality of salvation. And that's exactly the important truth that needs to be echoed around and around the world. Is it's Jesus Christ and Christ alone. It's not Christ and the church. It's not Christ in a denomination. It's not Christ in baptism. It's not Christ in good works. It's not Christ in good behavior. It's Christ and Christ alone that paid the price and saves men from their sins. And the fact of the matter is that in Romans chapter number 2, you're going to see a group of people who are going to say, well, wait a minute, we, we, we do this and, and we've done that and, and we've behaved in this fashion and we've behaved in this other fashion. Doesn't that count? Answer, no. Doesn't count a lick. Because it's all on Christ. It's either all Christ or nothing. Simple and sweet. And in our society, that's becoming a bigger issue than it have ever been before. If you know Christ as Savior, you need to take heart about two good verses in the book of Romans. One is in Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Romans 5, 1. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation or judgment to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. This chapter 2 is dealing about and with people who have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And he is saying, you here in chapter 2, though you may be religious like John was and like Nicodemus was in John 3, the fact of the matter is you're still inexcusable. You're lost without a relationship with Jesus Christ. So to begin the message, you need to get this straight in your mind. Has there been a time in your life where a relationship with Jesus Christ has been biblically 
established. That you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. The fact of the matter is that there are many people who've had religious experiences. But the question is, did they understand that Christ died on the cross for them, was buried, and third day rose again? Do they understand that? Not just as factual, but a personal fact. The fact that he died for me. I was a sinner. Christ died for me and believed on him as Paul wrote in Romans 10. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Is it personal? Has it happened to you personally? Do you know for certain, for sure, if you died graveyard dead sitting in this Baptist church this morning, that you would go to heaven based on what Christ did for you? That's the issue on the table, and that's very important because Paul is dealing with a group of people who do not know Christ. They are religious. They've done a lot of religious things. They've done a lot of moral works. But they're not saved people because they have a misplaced faith. And my friend, there'll be a lot of people in hell who misplaced their faith. They put it in their own works and their own moral goodness, and they missed what Christ did for them on the cross. I hope you'll not. Does the Christian bear judgment? Oh, certainly he will. We've read about that when we were back over in Corinthians. We go to the judgment seat of Christ. But it is not the judgment seat of Christ that determines or is intended as judgment to see whether we go to heaven or not. That's decided by what you do in this life with the Lord Jesus Christ. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's in this life. That's not later. That's not at the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is with purposes to reward faithful service, not to determine who gets into heaven or not. The decision whether you'll go to heaven or hell, you will make in your lifetime. And by the way, the thrill of chapter 2 as we continue his study of it, you will see it even speaks about the, the forbearance, the goodness, the long-suffering of God. If you're here in this service and you've never believed on Christ as Savior, let me tell you something. It's the goodness, the forbearance, and the long-suffering of God that you're even alive to hear the message you're hearing. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And when you get into chapter 2, and especially when we get into 4, 5, and 6 verses of chapter 2, you'll see how kind and gracious God is to give people opportunity to be saved with His patience and forbearance with them. I called your attention to an at, a natural outline for the first 16 verses, and that's what we'll be on to in the next 4 or 5 months probably. But anyway, the point is, in chapter 2, I want to call your attention to the fact that Paul's going to talk about judgment and if you're going to talk about judgment, you need to talk about the basis of it, the criterion of it. On what basis will we be judged? These people he speaks about, not the Christians, but the folks in chapter 2 to whom he addresses. What's the basis, Paul? What do they need to address in their lives to, to be spared this judgment? He writes it out and he uses a key word. He's repeating it three times in the first 16 verses. You look for the word according According, A-C-C-O-R-D-I-N-G. Note the first one in verse number 2. But we are sure that the judgment of God is what? Tell me. To what? Truth. That's the first basis of judgment. Now that, my, my friend, we can take encouragement from that. That mankind is going to be judged according to truth. You can't beat that. He's not going to be according to lies. He's not going to be according to what people said. It's not going to be according to what pastor thought. It's going to be according to truth. 
That's the first one. Look at verse number six then for the second one. Who will render every man, what's that say? To what? His deeds. There's a judgment of God for lost people. They will be judged according to their deeds. And I personally believe that he'll be judged on what opportunities, what exposure, what advantages did you have? And the reason I say that is because he's going to talk about the Jews having all these advantages, and he starts that in chapter 3, verse 1. Did you notice when you read through Romans chapter 3, verse 1, he said, What advantage then had the Jews? Well, he's going to tell you all the advantages these Jewish people had, and they ran roughshod over all of them. And he's going to talk about that. He said, You don't, you don't run roughshod over my forbearance and my goodness and my grace and act like it doesn't count. And you not pay for it. There's a judgment. And mankind will be judged according to his deeds. There's a third one. Look at verse number 16. And I guess this is my favorite. In verse 16 he said, In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to what? My gospel. When we get to that one, that's more exciting because to me, uh, that's really going to show you a, 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 what I call a, a, an insight, sort of a, a, a hole, a window in the gospel. And there's an exciting truth there as we get to that one. But back for a moment here, back to verse number 1 of chapter number 2 of Romans. Verse number 1, Therefore thou art inexcusable, that is, you're without excuse, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou hast judgest, that judgest, dost the same things. You need to keep in mind what Paul's point has been and what Paul's point is going to be is the simple fact that all people are guilty before God. He said it back over in chapter number 1 and verse number 20 when he said, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So in chapter 1, the people he wrote about, which in that case were the heathen, they're without excuse. I remind you of three things they had that made them inexcusable. One, they had the creation of this world. I mean, they had all the beautiful things of creation that they could look at, and, and with all the complexity of the created things, they looked at it, and God was saying through all that, one, I exist, two, I have a plan, and three, I work my plan, and you are included in it. You either repent and believe on my son that I sent for you. And all of creation started man's thinking toward those relationships with God. Didn't answer all of his questions by any stretch of the imagination. But it did make man think. God exists. He creates. He cares. And he shows his complexity about life in this. So if, if, he, if he makes birds that fly and he makes grass that grows and he does all these amazing things, then surely there's something more to life than just getting up in the morning, going off to work, coming home, going to bed, getting up, going to work, coming home, going to bed, getting up, going to work, and coming home, going to bed, getting up, and going to work. Surely there is. That's not what this is all about. There's something more than a rat race here. There's something of eternal consequence. This is the boot camp for that camp. And when we get there, my friend, let me tell you, he's going to be center focus. The very thing he wanted to be here in our lives and ought be in the lives of every believer. Sinner. A sinner stage kind of event. Back to, and this is important, not only did he show them in creation, but he also showed them in conscience. In chapter number one, he talked about those things that even in their conscience bore them witness that God existed. And that man has some kind of relationship to him. But then as we well know, eventually, 
God the Father sent His Son. And so they not only had creation, conscience, but eventually they had Christ. All of which was to make these people inexcusable. That means whether they be the, the heathen in some dark continent of this world, whether they be some brilliant man in downtown Hong Kong, he, she, they are all without excuse before the holy God of heaven. Nobody will be able to stand in His presence and say, Hey, wait a minute. If, if I had just been in America where I could have heard the gospel on radio and television and gotten to a Baptist church on Sunday, I'd have been a different person. He's going to say, he won't say this, but he'll say something similar, hogwash. He said, that's hogwash. You're without excuse. I gave you opportunity. I, I planted things and I made you see creation and you knew there was something behind it other than just some happenstance evolutionary kind of concept. You knew better than that. Oh, you denied it because if you didn't deny it, you knew you had to admit there's a God and if you admit there's a God, you had to admit that when you die, you may meet Him. And you didn't want any part of the reality of what that would stand for and so you eliminated me by eliminating the belief in this system. But one thing for sure... No matter what you believe, you can't make him or uncreate him as God of this universe. He is who he is and he far shall forever remain who he is without change. That's what makes him God. There's something else to be noted here. In verse number 1 of chapter 2 then, my own personal take on the interpretation of the chapter is that he is addressing himself to Jews primarily. Now, not totally and absolutely to the exclusion of all others. But I believe that without a doubt, that's his primary target as he talks about these people. And he culminates it in verse number 17 when he says, Behold, thou art called a Jew. But uh, I believe there's a mixture here of folks, but primarily I think it's Jewish. By the way, part of my belief in that is historically and the custom and the background of, of the, the day was that Jews believed that uh, if they were morally good and they generally kept the law, then they were accepted of God. I was reading in a history book not all that long ago of a man who wrote about Jewish history in the early days. And they so much believe this that they believe, they believe this, that Abraham actually sat at the gates of hell and made sure that no Jew was put into hell. They were so assured that their relationship with God was so good and they were such a chosen people that no Jew would ever get put into hell. And so their belief system created this illusion that Abraham actually sat at the gate and would make sure that no Jew was thrown into hell. Now you'll forgive me, but that's very foolish and, and very ignorant. The Bible doesn't anywhere make any such claim. It does indicate that the Jews are a special people to God. But Jews of this chapter look down on the heathen, the Gentiles of chapter 1, and we note that when you come into chapter 1 or chapter 2 verse 1, that Paul burst that bubble in a hurry. He turns to them and says, Now you are just as inexcusable. Oh, you'll have a lot of things you'll brag about, but it won't make any difference. You see, verse 1, and you need to understand what verse 1 is really saying. From verse 1, he says, They judge other people. And you and I both do the same thing. We judge people. You judge people this week. I judge people this week. Some of you have judged people who come into this service this morning. You've looked at them and you may have made a mental decision whether or not you like them or dislike them just by seeing them. I know some of you saw me and said, Ugh, you know, that's okay. No big deal with me. 
But the fact is we make judgments, we make decisions and so forth. If you're not careful, however, you will look at yourself, uh, you know, I, I never, I'd never be around that person. I, you know, I just, I just wouldn't. I don't like them. See? And you make a judgment based on something you perceive or something you actually see or something you think or maybe you've actually got phobic about something you've seen on television and this person really fits the bill and so you carried it from what you heard to them and you've programmed your mind to condemn them. You don't like them. Well, that's part of what the Jews had done to the Gentiles. The Jews were pre-programmed to hate Gentiles. They were dogs, if you please. In the Middle East, the children of the Palestinians are taught in their schools to hate the Jews. And those documented videos proved to be on question. And everybody said, oh, I don't believe they do that. Then they put these videos out and showed that the Palestinians were actually teaching these kids and they painted these pictures and had them to punch them because they were Jews. You see, the fact of the matter is, if, if that's the culture in which you're reared and grow, you'll carry it with you wherever you go. Well, what happened in Jewish days, they did the same thing with Gentiles. They didn't like Gentiles. And so they grew up with the idea that Gentiles are pagans and heathen and, and they're God-haters. And so you don't have anything to do with Gentiles. And so consequently, Paul writes chapter 1 and all the Jewish communities over here saying, Amen, preach it, brother. He comes to chapter 2 and he said, You're an inexcusable old man yourself. Because you judge those people for what they do, what they are, and what they stand for, and you're guilty of the same exact things you condemn in them. And that's what verse number 1 is saying. You see, in order to condemn someone on the basis of judgment, you have to have a criteria by which you make a judgment. That means you know the law. You know the judgment. And if you condemn them, he's saying, do you think, you really think, you, you passed the law and you didn't commit any errors in the law? Oh, no, I don't think so. We all have sinned. All have come short of the glory of God. And when he gets to Romans chapter 3, he'll hammer that away again and again and again. Now, Paul's smart. He knows he has to be careful here because in the Old Testament, the prophets were severely persecuted for bringing attention to Israel's hypocrisy. Jesus Christ was crucified for it. So Paul has to be careful. And so he lays out his argument in chapter number 2 very carefully, but he nonetheless lays it out. I'd say to you that what he starts out here by saying in Romans 1, did you ever see creation? And if they answered, the heathen answered, yes, we did, then he'd say, you're without excuse. Then when he comes to chapter 2, he'd ask the Jews, did you ever judge somebody for their actions? And the Jews would say, yes, we did. Then he'd say, then you're inexcusable. You, by your very actions, have condemned yourself by the judgment that you've lodged against them. Because he says, for thou that judgest doest the same things. Paul's writing that under inspiration, so that's not an opinion. That's God's decree concerning it. That's the way you do it. Notice verse number 2 then. He says, but we are sure that the judgment of God... Now, why does he make this distinction or, clear, or contrast here? Because in verse 1, he's talking about their judgment. You'll forgive me, but your judgments and my judgments are pretty puny. One, we don't often have all the facts. But in our society... Who needs facts? We have opinions. Did you notice everybody's got an opinion? What would reporters do if people didn't have opinions? I thought about that. They'd be homeless. You know, what are you going to do? You're going to stick a microphone and say, what are we going to talk about? I don't know. Because if you don't ask you your opinion, he has nothing to say. He has nothing to take off on. So if he has no opinion, then he's not making any judgment. Life is built on judgment making. In our society, you'll forgive me, but it's getting a little bit out of hand, you know? 
Everybody thinks they got to explain everything. I got sicker than a dog. Listen to everybody who thought they had a way to solve the problem of winning the war in Iraq in faster time. I, I got sick of that. Like everybody can do everything and do it perfectly without the ideal of ever having the experience of doing it. Have you ever fought in a war? Oh, no, I'm not, but I have an opinion. Can I give you my opinion? Sure. Okay. Here's, how, here's what I'd do. I'd go over and knock that guy in the head, and I'd bury all these dirty dogs, and I'd walk out there in 30 minutes. Oh, well, you would. Well, that's good. Thank you very much for your opinion. Appreciate that. That's what we heard day in and day out. People giving unfounded, unlearned opinions about things. Now, you forgive me, but our society's got addicted to hearing that. You notice that? Every newscast, let's get this guy's opinion. Why? Why would I want this guy's opinion? He's a frail, failing human being. You want to get somebody's opinion? Say, God, give me your opinion. Let me know what you think about this. How do we solve this problem? You know, the only thing our president hadn't done that I would really like to see our president do, and I, like John, I appreciate our president. Pray for him, and, and I rejoice in most of the direction he's going. I appreciate that. But you know, I'm waiting for one thing to happen from our president. If you email him, email him this, okay? I'm waiting until he walks out to face the nation, to address the nation one night, and he says, let us pray. Well, wouldn't that shock the socks off of a world? Just walk out and say, let us pray. I tell you what, you talk about a Baptist shouting, if the President of the United States walks out on the, uh, into the Oval Office or they even turn the spotlight on and flip the mic and our President said, let us pray, I believe that I'd go nuts on the spot. Can you imagine that? Most powerful man in the free nation coming to his people and saying, I'm keenly aware of the fact that I, I'm not the smartest guy to ever walk the earth. I, I, I'm not even the most educated. I, I'm not even the most charismatic guy. I mean, I, I, I can get along with people, but I, I don't have everything it takes to be all that I need to be to do what I got to do. I know what I need to do. Would you please pray with me? Let us pray. Boy, you talk about an event. You talk about a moment in history. What a joy that would be to hear. But I'll tell you what, everybody would have opinion the next day. My soul... There wouldn't be enough, there would not be enough airtime to cover all the opinions that the country would have about what the president did. He called for prayer. He even actually led us in prayer. Let me tell you something. I would not care. Now listen to me and listen to me good. You see, when you honor the Lord and you do what He wants you to do, you need to forget what other people think. You need to forget what other people say. You need to forget what other people's opinions are. They're irrelevant. And that's the reverse osmosis of what this chapter is about. He said, you folks are so concerned and everybody see you Jews as being moral and religious and all that. He said, you need to forget all that and you need to please the Father. That's what he's saying. And you want to do what He wants you to do and you want to do it His way. And Paul says in this verse of Scripture an interesting thing. He says, you can be sure, verse 2, we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. Paul's saying, this is something I can, you can bank your life on. That you better please Him. You better get to know what He wants done because He's the one you're going to stand before. And you better have done it His way because there'll be no excuses, there'll be no exceptions, and there'll be no hypocrisy. There'll be nobody wearing masks. 
There'll be nobody being hypocritical. There'll be nobody wearing disguises. There'll be no play acting. It was um, President Lincoln who said, if you recall, you may or you can fool some of the people all of the time. He said, you can fool some of the people some of the time. But he said, you cannot fool all of the people all of the time. And I wish he had added, and God says, you can't fool me any of the time. Because that's a fact. And that's what this judgment, and he speaks about in Romans chapter 2 verse 1, is so exciting because it's according to truth. It's not according to speculation. It's not according to some kind of opinion poll. It's not even considered about what the media thinks. This thing is according to truth. Knowledge increases. Truth never changes. That's why I'm so excited about and knowing Christ. Christ said in John 14, I am the truth. I am the truth. Do you know the truth this morning? Now, I don't mean a little bit of the truth. I mean, do you know Him who is the truth? It's interesting also to me and how privileged I am to be a part of a church. The Bible says that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. It also says the Word of God which is the word of truth. The New Life Baptist Church has nothing to do with falsehoods. We don't want anything to do with falsehoods. We have enough to do and enough responsibility to deal with truth around here. If we just saturate our minds and our hearts with truth, knowing Christ in as deep and intimate way as you possibly can know Him, and then two, having as it were a responsibility as a church that is a pillar in the ground of the truth, to disseminate the truth, to share the truth, to sow the truth, and then make sure always as our Sunday school teachers take their lecterns in the pulpit here in the auditorium that we preach the truth. The absolute unequivocal truth. God's Word. Because here's the reason. Men, women, boys, and girls are going to be judged by that truth. And it's important that God's equation to say you're inexcusable. You went to New Life Baptist Church. They preached it all the time. They taught it in their Sunday school classes. They shared it as witness. They did everything in the world about the truth. There is no excuse for you to say, I don't know Christ and I don't know why I don't. I guess I just never got around to believing on Him. Paul would look at you as our Father in Heaven would look at you and say, Thou art inexcusable, old man. No excuses accepted on that kind of basis. And I say to you this morning... It just makes good sense to trust the Lord Jesus Christ who is the truth. It makes good sense to join a Bible-believing church which is a pillar in the ground of the truth. It makes good sense to read every single day from the Word of God which is the Word of truth. Knowing exactly what the Father wants because it's by basis of this truth that man shall be judged. I thought about this. You know, there's always distortions in judgment. It may be the distortion of a judge in a courtroom. It can be a farmer in a barnyard or it can be a, a pastor in an office or a doctor in his surgical uniform. But people make distortions of judgment. They make bad judgment, make bad, bad opinions. See. But I don't think there's anyone any better. I don't know how many folks in this room have ever taken the Dale Carnegie course on how to influence friends and, and how to win people influence friends. Anybody take that thing? Bob taking that thing? And uh, Edith has taken that thing. Anybody else? Interesting thing, in his book on how to win friends and influence people, the, the, he tells an illustration, and I believe, I don't have the book now, because I, I didn't take the course, I just got the book, somebody gave it to me. But uh, on page 20 in the book, I believe is about where it starts, and tells a story which I think is absolutely amazing. 
But uh, understand that principle first. In the Dale Carnegie course, the principle is very simple. His ideal of managing people is that because people rarely admit when they make mistakes, you really are wasting your time criticizing them. That's the bottom line. Uh, I, I could save you about what, how many hundred dollars that costs that thing. I don't know how many hundred dollars that'll cost you to take the Carnegie course, but that's, that's in, a, in a nutshell what the Dale Carnegie course is. You're wasting your time criticizing people and managing them because most of them don't believe they did wrong in the first place. And unless you get that done, you're, not gonna, you're just not going to get anywhere. So you might as well not do that. So what you do, you go beyond that. That's the whole idea of the Dale Carnegie course. But he tells a story in there to illustrate that point, and he tells it about uh, uh, Al Capone. And what he does, he quotes Al Capone. Al Capone was that mobster up in uh, Chicagoland, you know, a gangster kind of guy. He killed, he robbed, he's a liar, he did all kinds of things. God only knows what else he did. But the fact of the matter is, what is amazing about it is how he saw himself. And they did it. They stuck a reporter with a microphone in Al Capone's face, and here's what Al Capone said. Listen to this. He said, quote, I have spent the best years of my life giving people lighter pleasures, helping them to have a good time, and all I get is abuse and the existence of a manhunt. End of quote. You believe that? I mean, and Carnegie's saying it doesn't do any good to, you know, to criticize Al Capone because Al Capone didn't think he did anything wrong. You know, the reason I tell you that is this, is because he or we, or you, or I may excuse ourselves. But people who are lost and have to come to the judgment of God, God's not taken by what you think of yourself. By the way, God didn't take Carnegie's course. And so God's not just going to criticize. God's going to condemn. And it's a righteous condemnation. It amazes me that people in our society simply do not see themselves as needing a Savior. When we come to chapter number 2, verse number 16, we see that those people will get to see Him as a judge. You reject Him as Savior, then you'll see Him as judge. My friend, I would say this, and I would urge and exhort anybody in this room who has never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior to this end. Do not, I repeat... Do not look at professing Christians. Do not look at church-going people. Look at Jesus Christ, the sinless, spotless Son of God. And don't hide behind the failures of other humans. Because all that is is a simple uh, ideal of stuffing a, a lie into the skin of a reason and saying, this is why I'm not a Christian, because I saw these Christians. And what I'm saying to you, when you stand before God as a lost person, He is not even going to acknowledge such a silly statement. Because all along, He never said to you, look at the Christians, watch them, and, and boy, they're a great testimony of what I want for you. He never said that. He did tell the Christians to walk circumspectly. Abstain from every appearance of evil. Come out from among them and be you separate. He said all that to the Christians, but he never once said to a lost person, look at, the, look at the Christians. Follow every step they take. Do everything they do. They're my people and they're perfect and, and they do it right and they'll lead you to heaven. He didn't say that. He exhorted us to set the example, but he didn't exhort them to follow it. Why do you think? I know why. He knows us too well. He's even, even my best sheep. 
mess up. Even the best of the crop stumbles and falls and bumps their nose and breaks their leg. Even the best. Even though the principle is written to believers, Paul wrote it, and I hope you haven't forgotten it. It's over there in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, but it applies to lost people alike. It simply says, For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. And that's absolutely true. We don't need anybody around here who's not a Christian to compare themselves with anybody in this building, including this preacher. I don't doubt for a second that every human being in this room is better morally than I am. I don't doubt that. How good moral you are is not what dictates whether you get into heaven or not. What dictates getting into heaven is your relationship with the Father's Son. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. No might be's and could be's or hope to be's, but shall be. Listen to me. Romans chapter 1 was saying there is nobody so bad they cannot be saved. Romans chapter 2 is saying there is nobody so good that they don't need to be saved. That's what chapter 2 is saying. Here's the question. It's the one we start with in the Acts. Are you a hypocrite? Are you a person here this morning and you have never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and you find it awfully easy to condemn in the lives of others? What, in fact, is some of the laws and crimes of your own heart? Let me ask you a more personal and probing question. Do you act like a Christian, but in reality really not? And by the way, this judgment of Romans chapter 2 is not just for people who are absolutely, unequivocally, self-testified to not saved. It's for everybody not saved. You might be in a membership of the New Life Baptist Church, and you may be here at this judgment if, in fact, you're not a believer. So he's not going by what you say, and he's not going by that certificate of membership that you may have in your file or in your billfold. What he's going by is what he sees in your heart. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with a mouth confession is made unto salvation. This morning, if you don't know Christ, remind yourself of this. God sees your heart and I would say he knows and he counts the rest of us do not in the scenario of eternity it doesn't matter what I think of you in the scheme of life after this life it doesn't matter what I have an opinion what matters is what God knows and by the way what you know you know in your heart whether you trusted Christ or not you know whether it's real or it's not. I told our church Wednesday night, and I told Amy Richards when she left, that Amy, I'd tell her story. I said, I'll tell people, and we'll do it appropriately. And so Wednesday night, I shared with a church who was here about the fact that back on September the 1st, Amy Richards of our church came to my office. My wife and I were there, and she came one Sunday morning about 8 o'clock. And she walked in the room. She was crying. And she said, Pastor, and told my wife, and my wife came in and spoke for her and helped her as she was weeping. She said, 
I am not saved. I have acted it. I got it down good. But I don't have a peace. I am not quiet at heart. I am not saved. And I, I was caught off guard, and as I recall, I said, well, you, you come to the right place, you know. And I didn't mean to be facetious, and I didn't mean to be sarcastic, but I really couldn't hardly think for the moment. And I said, well, you've come to the right place. She then in that room that Sunday morning told the Lord she was a sinner. And no amount of what she had done covered up the fact that she knew that deep down. And there was no peace there, no quietness of heart. And there was always an unsettledness about her life. She could never figure out where it was coming from, why it was present, until she finally accepted the fact, I have not trusted Christ as my Savior. Oh, I know the facts. I know all the facts. I could explain them to you every way, inside and out. But it's not personal. And that morning, in that room, she asked Christ to come into her heart and be her Savior. So from time after that, I'd ask her, is the peace there? And she said, yes, it is. It's a peace that passes all understanding. And I know now if I died today, I'd go to heaven. I tell you that because I told her at the time we would not say anything to the church simply because she taught a Sunday school class here at the church and she was involved in ministry. And very frankly, from all outward appearances, she was as fine a Christian as this church had produced. And I feared that it might discourage some of her students if they saw in their teacher getting saved without a full understanding. And that's where I believe that the parents came in the picture, that they need to explain this, how this happens, how it comes about. And I believe the parents were in a more capable position to do it, but I was available for any who had any questions. I say all that to say this this morning. It is not a matter of what other people may think. It is a matter of what God knows. God knows. And He knows this morning if every human being in this room, including this preacher, has a relationship with Him through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows that. And it is not an excuse or a good reason to say, well, I would, but... The but in that statement is absolutely out of place. There is no room for it. If you know you're not saved deep down in your heart, I can assure you the emptiness and the lack of peace will not go away simply because you put your head in the sand like an ostrich. God keeps reminding you and keeps bringing it up because He doesn't want you to leave this life and enter into eternity lost with all the advantages you've had to hear the gospel. And we've had many. How is it with you this morning? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the straight shooting chapter 2 that Paul writes under the inspiration of God. Thank you that he leaves no stone unturned, as it were, to point out the fact that all of us are without excuse. We can judge other people. We can look upon their lives and make decisions whether we agree with their behavior or we do not. But to do just that, even, even among believers, indicates we know some kind of standard by which we make the judgment. Therefore, we know what's right and we know what's wrong. I pray this morning you'll help us to look deep into our hearts, not at other people, and not at what other people think of us. But help us to look into our own hearts this morning and make sure 
that there had been a day in our life where we acknowledged we were a sinner and acknowledged that Christ died on the cross for our sin, and then we took the initiative to believe upon you as Savior after you had taken the initiative to bring us the gospel. I pray speak to our hearts this morning. I pray for Christians in this room that we would not be hypocrites. Oh, we shall not go to this great judgment that's spoken of in Romans 2, but, Father, that, that judgment against our sin comes as chastening continuously. And it comes when we become hypocritical, when we become judgmental. We look at other people's failings and think they're worse than our own, when in reality we're all failing believers. We make mistakes, do dumb things. The good news is you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This morning I pray you'll help us as believers to be Christ-like in our rapport, our demeanor, our attitude, our actions, and do indeed use us then in the lives of lost people to point them to salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? Turn to 282 in your hymn book, Just As I Am. If God has spoken to your heart this morning, let me invite you to come today and allow someone to take a Bible and show you how you can be saved. If you know Christ as Savior, and, and yet in your life you've noticed you're a hypocritical person, a person who judges other people and condemns other people, but your own heart condemns you, but you just don't address that. That's a personal matter. It's between you and the Lord. It's not between me and you and you and the church. It's between you and the Lord. I'd urge you to come, though, and you and God do business this morning. The fact of the invitation is to simply say, now that we heard the truth, let's act upon it as God has spoken in my heart with it. As He, the Holy Spirit, brought it to my life and applied it, then I need to act upon it. That's what the invitation is. It's a time to act. So let me urge you to be obedient to God's Word and do what He wants you to do. Don't do what is just emotion. Not interested in an emotional decision. We're interested in a biblical decision, one prompted by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. When we have those kind of decisions, they're real, they're lasting, they're effective in influencing other people also. May God speak to our hearts and work in our lives as we wake before Him in the invitation. You sing with us. 3, 282, verse 1, together please. Just as I am without one plea. God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? I don't do it often, but I want to do it now. Would you bow your heads for just a moment, please? Everyone's head bowed, every eye closed for just a moment. I promise you'll be out momentarily. If you know the Lord, would you please pray and ask God to give direction right here, right now. If you're in this room, my friend, and you'd say, Pastor Henry, I've heard what you've had to say from the Bible, and God has spoken to my heart, and He's spoken to me right now about the fact of my relationship to Jesus Christ. And I am personally convinced at this moment that if I died where I stand... I would not go to heaven. Would you please pray for me? If you're in this service and God has prompted your heart to see your lostness before Him and you want us to pray for you, would you mind just lifting your hand to the air and taking it down right now, right here? Anyone like that? God bless you. God bless you, sir. Anyone else? You'd say, I, God spoke in my heart about this thing and right here, right now, I'm open before the Lord that He has prompted my heart to believe I am not a Christian. If I die, I'm not going to go to heaven. 
please pray for me. Is there anyone else like that? And you say, I want you to pray for me. Anyone at all. Our Father in heaven, I pray for this one who's lifted their hand that they do not believe they are saved and believe that you've prompted them to that fact. As we sing this last invitation of this song, I pray you may help this one to come and make that decision and get this thing settled once and for all and forever. And Father, for anyone else who may have not had the courage to lift that hand, may you give them the grace to walk this aisle. Pray you'll work in our hearts right here, right now, as we wait before you and bring forth the fruit that you've ordained for this hour. We pray it in Christ's name and for his sake and glory. Amen. Last verse, verse 5, as we sing, you do what's right. Would you? Together, please. Just as I am with... God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? Thank you very much for your attention and your time this morning. I do again appreciate your presence with us in this Sunday worship, and I hope that you make it a point to be back with us tonight, 6 o'clock for the service. And our patch program begins at 5, choir at 5, men's prayer at 5.30. So if you can get into those, that would be good. Brother Brian will be preaching at 6, and then after that we'll have fellowship in the activity building. Hope you can come and be with us. Hope that you'll be praying for one another during the course of the afternoon and the day. Good to have you here. Let us pray. Our Father, again, thank you for the opportunity we've had to be together. And thank you for the Sunday school hour and pray you'd help our folks to be able to be in Sunday school with us next Sunday. Many who are not there today, pray that you'd increase our numbers there. And Father, we do pray that you'll bless your word as it's gone forth in the Sunday school hour, the worship service now, and as it'll go forth in the evening service, we ask you to bless the word of God. Bring forth fruit that you want from it. Bless Brother Brian as he'll speak this evening. Give him your power and boldness and the clarity to think and speak those things which you've laid upon his heart. And help us then as we sit and listen to receive the truth and be changed by it. Bless as we go from this place and give safety to your people. And for those who could not come today because of sickness, we pray for their healing and ask you to bring them back to us very soon. Thank you again for who you are and what you've done and what you're going to do for us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You're dismissed. Hey, brother.